Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone, listeners from near and far. Svi Hirschfield again, and we are here, or I am here, to discuss the double Parsha of Tazria Mitzorah with my friend, colleague, teacher, mentor, Dr. David Bernstein from the Pardes Institute. Welcome, David. Thank you, Svi. So uh, Parshat Mitzorah is particularly important to the Jewish people because one of the great leaders of our time had a bar mitzvah on that parsha, and it is none other than you, David. It's true. And any memories of your speech? None whatsoever. I must have thanked my parents, but beyond that, I have no recollection. I bet you thanked the rabbi. <laughs> I bet you thanked your relatives coming from near and far. But maybe your Torah was on such a high level that uh, it just couldn't be written down at that point. If there was any Torah in it. Okay, David, let's jump in. These parshiot are not easy. They seem to speak of things that are hard for us as moderns to connect to or understand, and issues of purity and impurity and sara'at. Where did you go with this? Tell us. So it seems like sara'at, which is not leprosy, but some kind of skin disease from on high, it seems to be connected to Lashon Hara to speaking badly of others. And that we know from a different book in the Torah, from Sefer Bamidbar, in the 12th chapter, it describes how Miriam and Aaron, but it seems perhaps primarily Miriam, speak badly about Moshe or about Moshe's wife. Not exactly clear what it is that they say. And Miriam is stricken with Tzara'at, this uh, supernatural skin disease, for what she said. And Moshe intervenes and prays to God, and she's healed. But there seems to be a pretty direct link that the Torah is making between speaking evil, speaking badly about people, and this tzara'at, this skin disease. Well, I think also because the mitzorah, the one who's afflicted, has to leave the camp, it sort of helps us connect this idea that negative speech really harms the community, and this person who's harming the community has to be removed. Right. It's a kind of anti-community thing to do, to speak evil of other people. It creates divisiveness. Absolutely. And, and there are other direct links in the Torah between actions and their reward or punishment. So, for example, living a long life, longevity, is connected in two places in the Torah, honoring parents and the mitzvah of kan sipor, of sending the mother bird away before you take the egg from the nest. Right. So basically, there are times 
where not only does the Torah sort of promise general well-being for following the covenant, but it even gets more specific. If you do X, you will result in Y, which, of course, I can already imagine would raise all sorts of difficult questions for us who are living in this world. Yes. You know, it seems that that direct link is not certain and that the rabbis understood that the direct link is not always so clear. In the case of Elisha ben Abuya, who's one of the rabbis of the Talmud, the story is told in the Talmud that he was doing the mitzvah of Kansipur and the mitzvah of honoring his parents at the same time, and he fell and died. Meaning he saw somebody fall and die. He did mm-hmm. himself didn't fall and die. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what's the story here? We also know from Tanakh in general, from many of the stories, that the promises and the rewards don't seem to come so quickly. So, for example, Avraham is promised land and promised progeny. And certainly in his lifetime, he doesn't really get either. He has to pay a fortune for this cave of Machpelah. That's the only thing he owns in the land of Israel. And he has basically one son by the skin of his teeth. He has to send Yishmael away, and Yitzchak is almost killed. And so in his lifetime, what does he get? So one could argue, okay, it's the future. He was promised in the future. But that is, I think, only half an answer. So just so we can make some uh, order here in what you're saying, because I'm hearing two very troubling questions. Number one, sometimes the Torah promises reward for specific actions, and we see it's not happening. And you even mentioned Elisha ben Abuya, who was a great scholar of his time, is so troubled by this event of seeing a boy who, on the instruction of his father, climbs a tree and, and sends the bird away, and he falls off the ladder and dies, and he thinks what we would think. I understand. God promised long life for these two things. He's doing them, and this boy is cut down. And then you're pointing also this other sort of wider either problem or challenge, that the avot are promised a lot of things. And yet they're promised the land of Israel, they're promised a great nation, and yet each one of them pass away. You know, Yaakov passes away in Egypt, Avram passes away with one son, the land of Israel does not belong to him yet, and the sense of God's promise being fulfilled or a direct result is also not happening in their life. So basically things are not as simple as we want them to be. Yeah, they're not as simple even as they seem to be written. You know, if we say in the Ashrei, you know, from Tehillim, Shomer Hashem et kolo avavet kolo reshaim yashmid, that God guards all of those who love him and will destroy all of the wicked. But, you know, I just came back from Poland. And uh, when you talk about uh, the Shoah, which is certainly part of a trip to Poland, hopefully not all of it, you understand that it doesn't always work that way, that the righteous seem to suffer and that the evil seem to prosper. We don't have to go farther than looking around our world today to see that. And, you know, obviously the rabbis knew this and the rabbis tried to deal with this in different ways. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that the promises that are made in Tanakh that seem to be crystal clear don't always come out the way we would like them to. I think you said it more gently 
one could say that uh, the example that comes to mind is at the end of Birkat Hamazon, we say, From my young age to an old age, I've never seen a righteous person abandoned. I've never seen a righteous person who needs food. And here you are coming back from Poland. And I've been to Poland with David. If you haven't gone, you should go with David. It's a very powerful experience. But be prepared to be emotionally drained for at least two weeks afterwards. And that's not an exaggeration. But here you are coming back from a trip, which is literally... Literally, all around you stories of righteous people who were abandoned and righteous people begging and pleading for food. And so these promises, whether it's as vague as what we do with the second paragraph of Shema, the Vayayim Shema, which promises reward and punishment, which interestingly some Jewish movements have removed from the prayer book, precisely, I think, because of the issue that you're raising. And so it seems to me that there's a problem on two levels. Number one, how do we understand these texts and promises? But number two, how do we affirm them in our prayers? Like we still recite them. We still say these things. We still recite Tehillim. We we recite Birkat HaMazon. And so, you know, I think you sort of raised the enormous question. And I would say after Pesach, as we move into those days that cause us to reflect, whether it's Yom HaZikaron or Yom HaShoah, I would say for every practicing Jew or aware Jew, these questions are in the air. Yeah, I mean... Just as an example, you mentioned Nar Haiti at the end of Birkata Mazon, the grace after meals. In our house, if we're singing Birkata Mazon, we sing it in a sad tune and not in an upbeat tune because we know that it's not necessarily true. I mean, in the case of my parents and my wife's parents, they went hungry. I'm not calling them tzaddikim, but they certainly weren't rishaim. They certainly weren't evil people. And one of the ways that I deal with that, by the way, in prayer is that I say them more as prayers than as declarative statements. It's a hope. It's yes, a wish. Yes, exactly. It's exactly. It's a hope, especially especially the prayer when we say that Chachamim bring peace to the world, which is sometimes true, certainly, but sometimes not true. I say it as a prayer, as a wish, that they should actually be bringing peace to the world. Saul Lieberman, as Sal said, that was an example of humor in the Talmud. <laughs> Which uh, I can appreciate greatly. So here we are, and now this is fresh for you, both just to make clear, because you yourself are a product of uh, Holocaust survivors, so is your wife, that this is something that's completely part of your family history and your personal story, and it's also coming up in your religious life. So what do you do? So I've come to the conclusion that God wants us to live with uncertainty. It's not supposed to be A leads to B. Maybe it is sometimes, but in general, life is uncertain, and God knows that, and God wants it to be that way. It's connected to free will. I won't get into that whole discussion, but I think it's connected to free will. But also, I think in Sefer Dvarim, in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells us, tells the Jewish people, that the land of Canaan is not like the land of Egypt. And Ramban says on this verse that in Egypt there's the Nile River that overflows every year in a consistent way and fertilizes the soil with not just water but silt. And it's the secret of Egypt's great ancient civilization was the Nile overflowing every year. Same thing with the Tigris-Euphrates rivers in Mesopotamia. That was the basis of the great ancient civilizations, at least in the West. The land of Canaan that God is taking the Jewish people to is not going to be like that, he says. It's going to be a land that will have to depend on rain. And the vagaries of rain are well known, certainly to any farmer. 
Some years it'll rain bountifully, and some years there'll be a drought. And, you know, God wants us to look up and not down, to look up to heaven and to pray for rain. He doesn't want us to look down and be sure that it's all going to come from the Nile or from another river. And that vagary of life, that uncertainty, I think is what God intended for us. And I think that that uncertainty is important because it leads us to appreciate the things that we have. When we feel we're lacking something, that's when we appreciate it. It's only when we're sick that we really appreciate our health. It only has to be a cold or a flu and we feel miserable. And then all of a sudden we say, wow, I just wish I was healthy. I don't appreciate my health. And it's true of so many other things. If I can just jump in for a second, because it seems to me you're saying a couple of things. Number one, the idea that, like with the land of Israel, God has set it up that we need him. We are not given total control over our lives, that we can manage every risk and avoid every difficulty and problem, that God gave us a world of difficulty in part so we would recognize our own limits and build relationship with him. It's the famous Hasidic story of the king, I'm probably getting the story wrong, who the daughter gets kidnapped on the riding coach and she keeps happening every time she's out. And every time she's kidnapped, she cries for help and her father comes. And of course they wonder, well, why doesn't he just figure out a different way for her to ride? No, he wants her to get kidnapped so she can cry for help and be close to her father. I think I butchered that story, but you get the basic idea. But you're taking it another step, because one could argue what the Torah is saying is if you don't follow God's rules, there are going to be consequences. You're not going to get rain if you don't follow the rules. But you're saying something beyond that, I think. You're saying that in spite of all of that, there's never going to be a one-to-one where we can work out an equation that knows, I know exactly how many mitzvah I did the past year, therefore I know what's coming in the coming year. Correct. When we say tefillah derech, you know, that we pray to have a safe journey somewhere, that doesn't guarantee we won't be in a car accident. There are so many other variables. Sure, it's a good thing to pray. Hopefully it's helpful, but we have to drive carefully. The drivers around us have to drive carefully. You know, accidents happen even when they're not caused by humans. You know, there could be an avalanche uh, over which nobody had any control. And I think that's the world that God wanted us to live in. So the purpose to me, it seems, of all of those reassuring statements and those direct links. Well, that's, of course, right. The big question then, if this is true and God wants it to be beyond our understanding, beyond our simple equation, beyond our ability to calculate, well, if I say this prayer, then all this is going to happen, why would the Torah constantly have God making promises about our ultimate well-being for following the covenant and our protection for following the covenant in all those places in the Torah, both punishments and rewards? So the best answer I can come up with is that God is pushing us to do the right thing to strive to be better people. And God is also pushing us to believe the world is not random, that there is some kind of purpose, that justice will ultimately prevail, even if it's not apparent at the moment. I think those things are true. I think that God created a very nuanced, complex world. And, you know, it troubles me so much whenever you hear, unfortunately, a tragedy happens. And to add insult to injury, some rabbi will say, well, the reason that this terrible thing happened was X. Right, usually something really significant like uh, a bus ran on Shabbat or a boy wasn't wearing tzitzis or all these other really disturbing Right, the terrible comments. Habonim accident where many people, many children were killed. And a rabbi, 
a so-called rabbi got up and said that uh, it was because movie theaters were open in another city, you know, like on Shabbat. You know, like how that person has figured out God's plan eludes me. Or what kind of God they're describing who would kill children in one town because another town has a movie theater open. Correct. And unfortunately, we hear those things from time to time. So I'm very, very wary of those, you know, direct connections that people make. On the other hand, I think, you know, the rabbis tell us that when something bad happens to a person— you should actually examine your own actions. And here, I think that there's a value to that. Not that we can draw a direct link, but if something happens and it makes us stop and reevaluate where we are and makes us try to improve ourselves without drawing the direct link, I think there's a value to that. So there are a few things to unpack here then. Number one, that the ultimate promises of betterment or fulfillment can be out there, but they don't translate into a day-to-day that we can comprehend or understand, and to do that is probably going to lead to a very negative place. But the promises you're saying do convey a sense that there is ultimate justice in some way, that the world will work out in a positive way, but we can't hope to try to figure out step-by-step how all of that works out and how that's supposed to work. I also heard an element of Maimonidean thought here that some people need that reassurance, right? That they need that motivation of believing that if I do X, I will get Y. And Rambam really described that as one who serves out of fear, but that ultimately the truth is we have to uh, go higher than that. You added something he didn't add, which you only added in the guide, of course. The world really doesn't work that way, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's not how divine providence actually works. And free will is far more of a component of what happens to us than God moving pieces on the chessboard. But beyond that, that we have to transcend that. We ultimately have to aspire to do the mitzvot and live the best life we live because we think it's the right thing to do, not because we're going to benefit in the next 20 minutes and my team will win or my salary will go up or my allergies will go away. <laughs> yes, thank you for that last blessing. Yes, I David is suffering from allergies, so I gave him a quick bracha yes. there, which according to what David just said may help. <laughs> or may not. It may not help, <laughs> and he's not expecting it to help. So we're all good. So what I guess I need to ask you is, Is this enough for you? You go to Poland often. You live with the Shoah as part of your kishkas. Does your answer work for you enough? Look, it's a very hard question to answer. You know, I have many ways in which I relate uh, to the Shoah, but also I'd like to also emphasize the importance of understanding the 900 years of Jewish history in Poland that were vibrant before the Shoah and the contemporary Jewish community, which is really something remarkable. But In terms of the Shoah, which definitely is a a very important part of my heritage and my life and our home, I think that I relate best to Eliezer Berkowitz in his book, Faith After the Holocaust, and the idea of free will. And the question being, you know, that it's not here, I'm terribly oversimplifying. The question being not where was God, but where was man? And the fact is that we live in a world where people have free will and they can choose to do the best things, they can choose to do the worst things, and that's the world God gave us. And does he intervene? I'm sure he does intervene, but can we see his hand? Only in our imagination. It doesn't mean it's not there, but it's very hard for us to see. Sometimes people can see it, certainly people who survived Many of them see it, but it's very hard to find that. And I think that we have to live with the idea that the world is made up of people making choices. And that's the world God wanted us to have. 
So when you're there, are there moments where you're angry? I think at this point in my life, I'm more angry at people and not so much at God. I think, yeah, sure, there's certainly times when I'm angry, but usually it's more sadness than anger and more a commitment to remember and a commitment to move forward at the same time as well. You know, Jews hopefully don't get stuck in the past, even though we remember the past, we're commanded to remember the past, and it's important to remember the past, but we have to move forward. Rabbi Lord Jacobowitz, who preceded Rabbi Sachs as the chief rabbi of the UK, once said that the Jews, after the destruction of the temple, their response was to write the Mishnah. And certainly the response of the Jews after the Shoah was to create the state of Israel. So we're an optimistic people. We definitely remember the past, but uh, we use the past to uh, propel us forward. And I guess we talk about theodicy, but it doesn't dominate every discussion of what we do, except to learn from it, like the you know, because of our sins, we are exiled. Based on what you're saying, that's not as much cause and effect as saying something hard has happened. Let's see if we can learn something from it and improve from it without using that as a recipe to understand what God is doing. Precisely. So here's my tough question for you. The Chazon Ish said, in trying to explain a very upsetting statement in the Talmud, that you don't save the life of an apostate. And so, of course, people ask, well, today there are plenty of apostates walking around outside of B'nai Brak in the Chazanish's time. What would he say about the relevance of that statement? And he says something to the effect of that statement only applied in an age where the Jewish people were exposed to miracles all the time. Where if a person spoke Lashon Hara, they would be afflicted with Sara'at, and there was immediate reward and punishment, and you could see God's hand in everything. And we don't have that anymore. My question for you, David, assuming that is true, which time would you have rather lived in? Would you rather live in a time where the evidence is obvious in front of you, God is involved in both miraculously on both ends in terms of punishment or reward, or would you rather live in an age that you described where we're striving, we're aspiring, we're struggling, and we're really trying to do our best without this immediate expectation that God's going to supply everything? Well, I never lived in that other world that the Chazanish is describing. I never lived in a world that if I was Mechal Shabbos, if I desecrated the Shabbat, that lightning would strike me down. Or even near you. Yes. So I can only talk about this world, and I appreciate this world, and I think that this is a world that's of challenge. It's maybe because I've been blessed so much of my life, I feel you know much more comfortable in this world. But what you said about the Chazanish, I've also heard said a little bit differently by Rabbi Avi Weiss, who has spoken about the idea that why is it that the miracles of the exodus from Egypt have never been repeated, the 10 plagues, the splitting of the sea. And he said, you know, the Jewish people were in their infancy at that time. They needed those miracles. They needed someone to take care of them because they were infants, just as parents take care of infants in a way that would be unhealthy for them to take care of a young adult. The young adult needs more freedom. The young adult needs to be on his or her own. And I think that he describes how that's kind of like the arc of history. God had to intervene much more in those days, but today more of the responsibility falls upon us. So almost like raising a child, 
When your child is little, you solve all the problems for them. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they're cold, they're tired. Your job as a parent is to intervene, change the world so the world works better in their favor. And that continues. They're in preschool and a child is bullying them. You call the teacher, you call the parent, you intervene. But gradually over time, hopefully at least, and you're a parent of four wonderful adult children, there comes a point where you don't solve the problem, either because you can't or because you don't believe that that's really what's in their best interest. You listen sympathetically. You remind them that they have the capacity to move forward and solve it themselves. But in the end, you're saying, that's God with us. This is the price of being free adults, that God is not going to intervene to solve all our problems, even though sometimes I definitely wish he did or made an exception for me. Everyone else could be an adult, but I want to be a child every now and then to have God take care of me. Would it spoil some great eternal plan if I were a wealthy there man? There you go. Well, come on. What's the big deal? Just make an exception for me. But I guess we all want those exceptions for ourselves. And what you're saying is basically that this is part of a mature personality and a mature religious life to develop wisdom and self-reliance and make good choices and not rely on God as the ultimate referee in making everything better or fair, but we have to rely on ourselves, on the people around us, on our community, on the wisdom of our people. And yet, of course, the idea that something so horrible could happen, of course, my mind can't help but go back because I'm looking at you mm-hmm. and I'm seeing Poland. I'm mm-hmm. not seeing you sitting here. And it's still hard. It's still so hard to believe that God couldn't make that exception in that moment. I, I don't really have an answer. Oh, I don't. Well. There is no answer. Those for of you who thought that David Bernstein was going to solve <laughs> the problem of the Shoah theologically are going to be deeply disappointed in this podcast. But you still move forward. Yeah. There's certain things we can't understand. So maybe sometimes the Torah gives us all sorts of laws like Mitzorah, right? And like some purity and impurity. Maybe sometimes it's there to remind us that there's a lot to all this that we is not within our control, not within our understanding. And we're not going to master it in that sense of figuring out the system. I concur 100%. I think God set up a system that hopefully makes us strive to be better and to constantly improve. But those direct links just don't always happen or don't always happen in our lifetime. Maybe they happen in Olam Haba. Maybe they happen in the next world. Maybe they happen in the future. and We can't see it. But the reassurances don't happen immediately for sure. So if we could sum up, David, you can affirm that God indeed guards those who love him and will remove all the evil ones, but it's not going to happen in the immediate or obvious or even in some ways emotionally satisfying way that we want it to happen. And we're not being descriptive, but we're affirming our hope and faith that ultimately the, the world will progress to a positive place but there are going to be plenty of bumps along the road. Those of us living in Israel this past few weeks have seen a few of those bumps. Just a few. But you're not discouraged. I'm not discouraged. Sometimes I worry, but hopefully there's reason for optimism too. David, thank you very, very much. I think more than anything else, you're going to be embarrassed when I say this, but I feel like you're a genuine Ish Emunah in the sense that most people think an Ish Emunah, a person of faith, is somebody who points to every small thing that happens and says, God did this, and God did that, and God gave me this, and God punished me for that. But you're a different type of Ish Emunah. You're an Ish Emunah, a person of faith who believes that God is present, that God has a plan for the world, that God demands things from us, but that God also gives us a lot of freedom. 
and is not going to run the world in a way that we can then game the system and understand how it works. And ultimately, we're going to have to be motivated to do the right thing in true Maimonidean fashion because it's the right thing to do, not because we can see the payoff you know, coming out of that slot machine when it comes up Shabbos, 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 and the coins come out of the bottom, <laughs> uh, that uh, that's not going to happen. And I think for many of us, that's a more helpful emunah than the former. David, thank you very, very much. I learned a lot, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Svi. I never thought of myself as an Isha Munah, so I'll accept the compliment with great humility. And we will get a T-shirt that says that exactly on the back. Okay, everyone, and most guests don't get T-shirts, have you know. It's the first one I think I've ever promised in this podcast. So uh, thanks to all of you for listening, and please continue listening as we explore more Torah together. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.